For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Welcome to the Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, Dr. Mark Hitchcock brings a message entitled, Signs of the Times, which lays out the prophecies that foretell what believers can be looking for as we see the day of His appearing draw near. Now let's join Pastor Mark as he helps us to have a biblical perspective in our ever-changing world. All right, I welcome you back to your seats. What a great Sunday it's been already, so let me tell you quickly... Now, if you missed 830 service, uh, we've got that service that was entitled The Judgment Seat of Christ. Who stands before him? When does that happen? All Christians. How is that different from the end of the age with the great white throne judgment? Uh, whose fate, you know, it doesn't go well at that judgment. You don't want to be wake up one day to a great white throne. That's a, not a good sign. You want the Bema seed, the, the Bema seed, right? So anyway, 8.30 service is available on our app. It's so easy. It's free. Just download our app. You hit videos and you get uh, the whole sermon right there with the picture. So it's a little bit easier if you, you like to see things, you know, than just listening. Well, with that said, great timing for Dr. Mark Hitchcock to be with us this morning on a couple uh, notes. First is, is that I was away all week, as most of you know. Uh, I was at a Calvary Chapel Seniors Pastors uh, Conference. So there were uh, 1,500 senior pastors of Calvaries all over the nation and really the world, all in one room. It was so awesome. <laughs> you could turn to anybody and say, bro, what's up? You know, just instant camaraderie, you know. And I had never been to one. So uh, for whatever reason, it had not worked out. But so inspiring. So, so really a great time away. And I didn't have to worry about what's coming up Sunday. And the Lord arranged that before I even knew the dates. And so uh, God has a way of working it out. What's even more significant, timing-wise, 500 rockets over the skies of Jerusalem right now. Things are heating up once again in the Middle East. And so here we have on this Sunday uh, an expert. That's what he is. Mark is a leading Bible prophecy expert. He's written over 20 books on the subject. You know, um, he's also a senior pastor and an adjunct professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. You know what? He's smart. All right? Uh, You know what I like about Mark the best? He's not weird. All right? He's not weird. You hear, oh, there's a prophecy conference. It's like, okay, watch out, right? No, this guy's from Oklahoma. (laughs) That was a compliment. (laughs) 
he's got his head screwed on properly. He's humble, humble guy, and uh, I just really appreciate him. He's been sharing the gospel on the History Channel, MSNBC, Fox. I saw a clip of him on CNN, you know, asking questions. I just thought this. He's credible. He doesn't sound wacko. He just sounds like this is a guy who knows the Bible. He's a regular guy and uh, somebody you want to listen to. And boy, I could have, I told him I could listen to you all day. And then I thought, well, I'm going <laughs> to. So that's awesome. Uh, a former attorney. You know, that's a, I could see that in the way he makes a case for the Lord and just a humble guy. Why don't you welcome with me Dr. Mark Hitchcock. Take your time, bro. Take your time. Take your time. Well, it's great to be here with you all. I was commenting at the, the early service just what a blessing it is to be here. My, my wife, Cheryl, and my son, Samuel. Samuel graduated from Oklahoma State this last year where Cheryl and I went, and he's getting ready to be teaching at a Christian school. They're teaching Bible and worldview to high school students. We had a little bit of time off, so he came with us. So it's wonderful to, to have him with us on this uh, trip. Our other son and his wife are back home. He's uh, studying for the bar exam. He's got that coming up. He's graduated from law school, and uh, they're uh, expecting our first grandchild in November. So Cheryl, that's a great blessing for us. So Ross, uh, thank you. Ross and I share, our birthdays are just a week apart. We're both going to be 55, and I always think of how, uh, you know, when I was younger, some guy was 55 and had a grandchild. I thought he was old, you know, I mean, old, old man. So anyway, that's where I am now in life, but it's a great thing. We're excited about our grandbaby coming. We're proud of Sam and our family, and wonderful to be here with you all. It's uh, wonderful. The place we're staying, uh, Steve and Kathy have a staying up there in, in uh, is it at Healdsburg? Is that how you say Healdsburg? At the bed and breakfast there. It's like the millennial kingdom, I said at the early service there, I mean, it's beautiful. So just uh, a great blessing to be here, it really is, and to share uh, the Word with all of you. We, we talked the first hour about the uh, judgment seat of Christ, your final exam. I want to bring a message uh, during this hour on uh, signs of the times. And uh, then tonight, I want to bring a message on the whole blood moons deal. A lot of you have heard about that. And uh, John Hagee has a book, a guy named Mark Biltz. I take kind of a different view of that. I don't, I don't see that as being a, a big sign of the times like they do. I want to talk about that and uh, why I think that from the Bible. There's going to be a lot more about There's three more of those to go. And then after that tonight, I want to save some time for questions and answers. So if you have uh, questions that you'd like to ask about end-time prophecy, be here tonight and, and hopefully be able to answer those for you. So that's kind of where we're headed uh, for the rest of today. But uh, this morning, I want to bring a message on, uh, on the signs of the times. And I've called, uh, I call the message really a what to look for, uh, discerning the signs of the times. You know, if you travel around uh, the world, you'll see some interesting signs in different places. Uh, sometimes a little bit gets lost in translation. And, and at Paris, uh, hotel uh, elevator, there's a sign that says, uh, please leave your values at the front desk. <laughs> and a, uh, a Rhodes tailor shop, a sign says, order your summer suit because they're in a big rush. We will execute customers in strict rotation. <laughs> In a Hong Kong dentist, uh, in, in a dentist's office, it says, teeth extracted by the latest Methodists. I think they got that wrong there. A Copenhagen uh, airline office, the sign says, uh, we take your bags and send them in all directions. And they certainly do, don't they? 
In a Tokyo uh, shop, it says, our nylons cost more than common, but you'll find they're best in the long run. (laughs) And then finally, my favorite one, in a hotel in Acapulco, there's a sign that says, the manager has personally passed all the water served here. (laughs) Not what you want, I don't think, but... Well, the the, the truth is, uh, obviously, some signs are easier to read than other signs, right? Uh, Some signs are pretty clear and straightforward, and a lot of other ones are very difficult. But uh, in God's Word, God's given us some signs of the times. And again, some of them are a little more difficult than others, but some of them are pretty straightforward. And when you think about signs of the times, think about the end times, people, it seems to me, everywhere in our world today have this sense that, uh, that time is short. Uh, People have this sense that the world is getting near closing time. Uh, Disasters of epic proportion seem to be sweeping the globe. Uh, We we have all the problems with our economy. Uh, You have uh, natural disasters that are taking place, terrorism, uh, the the whole nuclear threat, the fear that nuclear weapons are going to fall into the wrong hands. Uh, People, it seems to me uh, today, are searching for answers. Uh, The world today is filled, I mean, if you were just to kind of describe it out there, it's filled with fear. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. There's a a collective sense, again, that uh, we're getting near closing time. Apocalypse is in the air. In fact, uh, I was reading an article not long ago about these pandemic plagues they fear, uh, you know, sweeping the globe, and the the title of the article was Apocalypse Now, you know, the swine flu and all that was going around at the time. In fact, I uh, just saw a sign the other day for this movie, uh, the the dawn of the planet of the apes or whatever the newest one is, and I was reading an article, and a guy called it the apocalypse, you know, that's coming, but... Uh, you know, but there's all the, you think about all the movies out there that, are, that have a post-apocalyptic theme. Just movies everywhere, The Book of Eli, The Road. I mean, all these movies are about some apocalypse and, you know, maybe the few people who've lived through that. So these are the times we live in today. We live in uh, the times of the signs, if you will. Uh, not long ago, I ran across some statistics, and one of them said that 41% of Americans believe we're now living in the end times described in the Bible. Um, LifeWay Research just this last year had uh, this uh, research that they did. They said 33% of American adults see Syria's recent conflict as part of the Bible's plan for the end times. 25% think that a U.S. military strike in Syria uh, could lead to Armageddon. 20% believe the world will end in their lifetime. That's interesting. 20% of the people in America believe the world's going to end in their lifetime. You'd think people would be living better, wouldn't you, if that were true? But, but, yeah, but there is this sense that, that, that's out there. And, you know, the only place that we can find answers about the future, reliable answers, is the Bible. Um, only God uh, knows the future. Reminds me of uh, the story about the uh, person that went to visit a psychic, and there was a sign on the door that said, closed due to unforeseen circumstances. And... Um, there aren't, there aren't any unforeseen circumstances, though, with God. Uh, there's never any panic in heaven. Uh, the Trinity never has to meet an emergency session. Uh, God knows the end from the beginning. And God hasn't told us everything in the Bible, but He has told us a lot of things. God has given us a, a panorama of what's coming uh, in the future. And God has also set forth for us some of the signs or the things we can look for as we approach the end times. And the Bible tells us that there are discernible signs of the times that are going to portend uh, the Lord's coming. 
Now, what I want to do in our time here this morning is really just cover two main points. I want to talk first about the importance of signs. Why should we look for signs of the times? And then the inventory of signs. I want to look at, now I think I've got here six main signs that uh, we can see in our world today. When it comes to thinking about signs of the times, there really are two main extremes. One extreme out there, and this is even found in a lot of Christian circles, a lot of people scoff at the idea of signs of the times and totally discount it. They say, you know, why look for signs of the times? You know, Jesus is just going to come back when he's going to come back, and we shouldn't really be concerned about uh, these kinds of things. So some people scoff at it, and then the other end of the spectrum would be what we might call unbiblical speculation or date setting, people that go way beyond the Bible and set dates for the Lord's coming and engage in all kind of really of reckless speculation. Now, we want to avoid both of those two, two extremes, but the, what I believe in the middle, the view that I hold, is called stage setting. So I, I don't believe in we should scoff at signs. I don't believe we should be uh, speculators or recu- reckless speculators, but I do believe uh, that signs of the times are important and that we live in a time today when the stage is being set. In other words, the events of the end times can't occur in a vacuum. So there has to be a build-up or a, a setup for these things. And I believe uh, that's a proper way to look at signs of the times. Now, a lot of you have heard some of these verses, but I want to just talk about them briefly. What did Jesus say about the importance of signs? Are, are signs of the times important? Well, remember in Matthew chapter 16 what Jesus said. A lot of you are familiar with this passage that uh, our Lord Jesus spoke when he was on the earth. Matthew chapter 16, he said this. The Pharisees and Sadducees came up to him, testing him to show them a sign from heaven. And he said, when it's evening, you say that it's fair weather, the sky is red. And in the morning, there'll be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? Now, when Jesus was on the earth, he was doing the things the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And so Jesus is saying, if you'll look around you now, you can see the signs of the times. There are about 109 prophecies that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. And by the way, those prophecies were literally fulfilled. So if the prophecies of the first coming were literally fulfilled, we should believe the prophecies of the second coming uh, will be literally uh, fulfilled as well. But the problem is most people missed his first coming, even the leaders of that day who knew the Bible. Now, That was the first coming, though, of Jesus. What about uh, the second coming of Christ? Should we look for signs of the times for the the second coming? Well, over in uh, Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21 and uh, verse 25, Jesus said this. Luke chapter 21 and uh, verse 25. He says, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. We'll look at that tonight, too, when we talk about the blood moons prophecy. There'll be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and of the waves. So Jesus says clearly here, before he comes back at his second coming, there's going to be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. And then remember in Matthew 24, verse 3, Jesus told the disciples the temple was going to be destroyed, and, and they ask him the question, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus didn't say, don't worry about it. (laughs) Don't worry about signs. He gives them a whole long list of the signs that will precede his second coming. So when people say, you know, signs aren't important, Jesus gave a long list of them in Matthew 24 and verse 3. 
The other thing is, in, in Hebrews 10.25, I don't know if you've ever thought about this verse in, in that light, but it says, and do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. He's saying, look, you know, don't, don't forsake getting together with God's people. And he says, but encourage one another. And then he says this, do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, now, some people think the day there in Hebrews is 70 A.D. when the temple was going to be destroyed, but I don't think that's what it's talking about because the book of Hebrews has a lot of eschatology and a lot about the future. So I think it's talking about the day of the Lord's coming. And notice he says there, do it all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, now, if you can't see the day drawing near, then what's the point of that statement, right? We must be able to see the day drawing near for that to make sense. Which, by the way, one of the things you all are doing by being here today is following that command. You do this all the more. As you see the day drawing near, he's saying, the last thing you want to do is go off and get isolated and be by yourself. You want to be with God's people where we can be encouraging and helping one another. So I think according to the Bible, we're to discern the signs of the times. We're to watch for great events, if you will, as they cast their shadow uh, before them. Now, here's a, a good chart. Again, I got this from Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye, their book, uh, Charting the End Times. And this book, th- this chart shows uh, really a, a good panorama of prophecy. We're over on the left side of this chart right now, your, your left, where it says the current church age. We're in the time of what I call the preparation for fulfillment. This is the stage setting. Things are being set up and prepared for for the end time events to come. And as again, as I said earlier, the events of the end times can't occur in a vacuum. There's got to be a buildup. Now, you'll notice on the left side there, I think the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. Um, I always like to say we're going to get an airlift accompanied by a facelift. You know, those of us who are alive, you know, uh, the, the dead, the, those who've died, their bodies will be raised and their perfected spirits will be brought with them with the Lord. They've been with the Lord. But those of us who are alive, we're going to go up body, soul, and spirit and be caught up. And I think that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar is this rapture. It's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And I think it's an, an, an event uh, that is imminent. Uh, It's an event that can happen at any moment in time. And so the rapture will happen. And then notice there's a gap there between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. This is something people, I think, often get confused, is they think the rapture starts the seven-year tribulation. We're going to talk about this more later, but the event that starts the seven-year tribulation is the signing of a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. So the rapture could happen today, and the tribulation might not start for a week or two weeks or maybe some months or maybe even a year later. The purpose of the rapture is to end the church age. Then when the rapture occurs, then there'll be a a further time of preparation. People often say, well, you know, if the rapture happened today, how are they going to get the temple built in Israel? Or how's Babylon going to start rebuilding that? Look, there there can be a lot of things happen in the time between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. But at some point then, that tribulation period will start, and that will be the beginning uh, of the end times. But here's a very important thing to remember Signs of the times, I believe, are for the second coming of Jesus, not the rapture. 
See, the rapture can happen at any moment. It's a signless event. The signs are for the second coming of Jesus, for the the second advent of Jesus. So the rapture is a signless, imminent event. It's kind of like the big one that everyone's waiting for out here in California, right? Well, you're not waiting for it, I guess, but uh, they they believe it's going to come someday, right? Nobody knows when it's going to happen. It's imminent. It can happen at any time. So it's certain that it will happen but it's uncertain when it will happen. And that's the way I see uh, the rapture. So the signs are for the second coming. Now, here's what's interesting. If you can already see the signs of the second coming and the rapture hasn't even happened yet, then that tells you the rapture must be pretty close, right? It's like Dr. Walvard that taught at Dallas Seminary. He used to uh, describe and and really put the rapture and the second coming kind of like Thanksgiving and Christmas, and he put the, the second comings like Christmas. There's all kinds of signs for, the, for Christmas. I mean, they start now like in early October, you know, playing the music in the mall and all that to kind of get you in the mood to buy stuff. But there really aren't any signs for Thanksgiving, I guess, unless you're a turkey, maybe. I don't know. They probably know when it's coming. But, but you know, you, you can, there really aren't signs. But the, the rapture is kind of like Thanksgiving, and Christmas is like the second coming. And Dr. Walvoord used to say, if you can already see the signs of Christmas and Thanksgiving hasn't arrived yet, then you can be sure that Thanksgiving's pretty soon. And that's the way I see these signs of the times. They're they're signs of the second coming. What I want us to do now is is just kind of look at some of the main signs, an inventory of signs. A lot of these are things you're familiar with, but I want to talk about these in, in light of some things happening today as well. Now, the number one sign, I know you all are aware of this, but I still want to mention it because it's so important, is the regathering of the Jewish people to their homeland. Uh, This is the super sign of the end times. And the reason it's so important is almost all the other events of the end times hinge in one way or another on the Jewish people being back in their land. For instance, the the, the event that starts the seven-year tribulation period is the signing of a, a treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. We can't make a treaty with Israel if they don't exist as a nation. We're going to talk later about Ezekiel 38 and 39, a group of nations that are going to come down and invade Israel in the end times. Well, again, you can't invade the Jewish people in their land if they don't live there. So this was the the precondition for all the other prophecies to be fulfilled. And back in 1948, when the Jews first came back to their land, their modern homeland, about 6% of the Jews in the world lived there, and now it's almost 40% of them. Uh, There's more Jews in Israel now than any other time since uh, A.D. 135, since the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. So it's very significant. The Jewish people were scattered to 70 different countries for 20 centuries. Their language died out, and yet they were brought back. It's called the miracle on the Mediterranean. No other people that's ever been dispersed and had their language dies ever come back to their homeland. The Jewish people have been dispersed numerous times, the last time to 70 countries for 20 centuries. And of course, they're so significant, so Satan wants to wipe them out, right? And he's tried throughout history to do that. And he's trying to do it now as well to get rid of the Jewish people because God promised that the Messiah would come through the Jewish people. So he tried to to kill them off so the Messiah couldn't be born. And when he failed in that, now he's trying to wipe them out because the Bible tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come back and sit on David's throne and rule over David's kingdom. So he's trying to thwart God's promises. But every time Satan tries to wipe out the Jews, did you ever notice they end up with a holiday out of it? Back in... uh, 
when, uh, when Pharaoh tried to wipe them out, remember they got Passover. And in the book of Esther, when, when Haman, the Agagite, tried to wipe them out, they got uh, the Feast of Purim. When Antiochus Epiphanes tried to wipe them out during the intertestamental period, they got the Feast of Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. And then, of course, when uh, Adolf Hitler tried to wipe them out in the 1930s and 40s, they ended up with May the 14th of 1948, the rebirth of the modern nation. So we know why the world, why they live in this sea of enemies over there is because Satan wants to wipe out the Jewish people. He's the ultimate anti-Semite. So what we see happening there today is part of his global plan uh, to wipe out the Jewish people. But the world is still focused today, every day, on the nation of Israel. And it's, a, it's an amazing thing to think about. To me, that's something you can't explain naturally. It's, it's a supernatural occurrence. There, there's another signpost that's very important, though, for us to think about today, especially in light of what's happening in the Middle East. And that is, I call this second one, the ratifying of a peace treaty. One of the key events of the end times is a peace treaty between the Antichrist and Israel. Again, as I said earlier, it's a seven-year treaty in Daniel 9.27. It's, it's stated there, and that is the period of the seven-year tribulation. And it's important because that's what starts this seven-year period we know as the future tribulation. And what we see in Israel from 1948 till today is constant warfare, constant fighting, President after president, secretary after secretary of state have worn themselves out over there trying to get some kind of peace over there, and it's a phantom. It's elusive. Uh, They're not able to do it. And all the stuff that we see happening over there today, all the chaos and uh, all the things that are happening, to me, are part of this buildup because something is going to have to get so bad that it's going to finally drive the parties over there to come to some kind of a peace agreement with one another. And that's what we see happening there today. It's all just being stirred up. And Daniel 9.27 tells us that, the print, that, that he, that is this coming prince, is going to make a firm covenant with the many in Israel for seven years. Now that word firm can have the idea of compelled. So the, this Antichrist figure is going to come on the scene and he may have the power to force these parties to the table to come to some kind of an agreement. And we see all the talk about that all the time, the, the roadmap to peace, you know, the Palestinian state, I mean, the, the Camp David Accords, the Oslo Accords. There's been more things signed and broken over there than you can ever imagine. But what we see from all of this that's happening over there, all of this turmoil is one of these days, something that people have never believed could happen is going to happen, and that is there's going to be a treaty signed over there. And Daniel 9.27 tells us that treaty is going to give the Jewish people the right to sacrifice there and on the Temple Mount. The sacrifices are going to be offered, which that's another thing that tells us there's going to have to be a temple there. They're going to have to have control of the Temple Mount. That's one of the, one of the thorniest problems, by the way, in all of Bible prophecy how they're going to get that. But a hundred years ago, people said, how in the world are the Jews ever going to get back to their land? God did it. And he says, there's going to be a temple there. God will do that as well. So what's going to happen is the Antichrist is going to come on the scene and he's going to be this one who's going to come and do what no one's been able to do before. He's going to bring this peace. Revelation 6, 1 and 2 describes him as a rider on a white horse. He rides forth with with a bow, uh, but without any arrows. He's going to come forth, and by diplomacy, he's going to bring peace. And I think the Antichrist is going to bring uh, peace to the whole world, global peace. 
that's going to be just for a brief period of time, and then the world's going to begin to, to, to fall apart. But in Israel, their peace will last for three and a half years. Like that passage in Thessalonians 5, it says, While they are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman, and they will uh, by no means escape. So the, the, the one thing this world wants more than anything else is peace. In fact, if you're a politician, uh, you, can, you can have a, two, a two-pronged platform and win every time if you can pull it off. Peace and prosperity. That's what people want, right? People want, to, want the opportunity to prosper, and they want peace. And the Antichrist is going to come, and that's going to be uh, his platform. By the way, people are always trying to figure out who the Antichrist is. And I always tell you, if you ever figure out who he is, i got bad news. You've been left behind. You don't want to know uh, who he is. Um, he's not going to be revealed, I don't think, till after the rapture. Uh, the Bible says that uh, he who now restrains will be taken out of the way. And I take it that's the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church is going to be removed. And that'll pave the way for the Antichrist to come on the scene. Now, the Holy Spirit won't leave the earth. He still has to be here to regenerate people, to do his work. But his restraining influence through the church will be taken out. Another thing, this is interesting. The the time we live in now, this is the day of restraint, the restraint of evil. One of these days, the restraint's going to be taken out of the way. And Satan's going to be able then to bring his strong man on the world scene. Another thing that's interesting about that too, it's all under God's control because you notice God has to remove the restrainer before Satan can, can do what he wants to do. So it's another comfort for us that God's in control. But when this Antichrist appears, he's going to come as a great peacemaker. He's going to usher in what we might call the new Pax Romana, the new Roman peace. And again, he's going to be able to pull it off. He'll probably be Times Man of the Year. He'll win the Nobel Peace Prize. But all of this turmoil and chaos and meltdown and confusion and the the rockets flying into Israel and Israel striking back at Gaza, isn't that Iron Dome an amazing thing as well? Have you all read about that? Shoots down these missiles and it it calculates if it's going to hit somewhere uh, where no one's going to be injured or or there's no buildings, then it doesn't doesn't take that, that rocket down. Because each, each time they fire up and take down one of those rockets, I think it's uh, something like uh, $32,000 or whatever. So, you know, they don't want to be shooting every, every one of these missiles, but it can calculate by, when it gets in the air that quickly whether it's going to hit a populated area or not and take it out or let it go. And again, this is part of the ingenuity uh, that God has given to, to the Jewish people for their protection. But when you see all this chaos over there, people say, well, you know, where's the prophecy about what's going on over there? Now, I don't see a specific prophecy, but it all fits in to set the stage for the buildup. They've got to have peace over there. And it's eventually uh, going to come at some point in time through this Antichrist. Now, here's another signpost. This is kind of a depressing one for us, but I call this the reduction of the United States. I don't like to talk about this, but I think it's true. I think the Bible tells us in the end times that world power is going to be dominated by this Antichrist figure, and he's going to rise out of a reunited Roman Empire. In Revelation 13, 4, it says, Who is like the beast and who can make war with him? So he's going to dominate the world. So if this Antichrist figure in this reunited Roman Empire is going to be the dominant force in the world, that means the United States won't be unless we're somehow in league with him. But the number one question I always get asked at prophecy conferences is, where is America in Bible prophecy? And 
I don't think the Bible mentions the United States. Certainly it doesn't by name. A lot of people say, though, America is the unnamed nation in Isaiah 18, or we're the, uh, the, the young lions of Tarshish in Ezekiel 38, or we're the, 12 lost, the, the, the 10 lost tribes of Israel, which, by the way, they aren't lost. But, uh, or Revelation 17 and 18, the great whore of Babylon, that will say that's New York City. Uh, but I don't think... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if you'd read it, it it is an interesting passage, but, you know, they'll say that's a great city in the end times is New York. But I don't think America is mentioned, certainly not directly, but I don't even think indirectly. So I think America is not mentioned. Now, some will say, well, I mean, you know, Bible doesn't mention every country in in the, the, the Scriptures, so, you know, maybe the Bible just didn't mention us. That's possible, but to me, we're the greatest economic, political power that's ever existed. And if we are a great nation in the end time, you think the Bible somewhere would give some indication of that. The Bible does mention countries very far away from Israel, Russia or Rosh and the kings of the east. So it could have easily referred to us somehow. So I think to me the fact that America is not mentioned is significant. I think the silence is is, is deafening. So people say, well, what's going to happen to America? Well, we don't know because the Bible doesn't tell us. But there are some plausible scenarios you can look at. I mean, uh, we could have nuclear terror here on our soil. Now, God forbid that would happen, and I pray that it won't. And I pray all the time that these terrorists will be thwarted in their activities, that God will cause their devices to come back upon them. But it's something that's possible that could take place. I mean, you you think about the economy here in in our country and the devastating effect of all this debt that we have in our nation and how that could bring us down. In fact, I uh, got this several years ago from Newsweek, How Great Powers Fall. And it says, this is how empires decline. It begins with a debt explosion. It ends with an inexorable reduction in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Went back and looked at great empires in the past, how they fall. They get massive debt, and they can't defend themselves. They end up cratering then and, and falling to other nations. And again, we're having to cut back now on our military because of other things that we're having to spend money on in our country. Some of them certainly are worthwhile, but what are we? It's, we're closing in on $18 in debt now in our country. I mean, you can't even imagine uh, that, that, that kind of money. Uh, I ran across this uh, w- one time. This is beautiful to me. The Washington Monument's 555 feet tall. The eastern side of the aluminum capstone is inscribed to the words Laos Deo, which means praise be to God. So the first rays to strike our nation's capital each day fall on those words. That was the intent of it. Think about that. The very first rays that come on Washington, D.C., strike those words, Lousdale, praise be to God. And I think how far our country has come uh, since that was placed. So you wouldn't even be able to put that there now. You've probably seen this before, heard it. Uh, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations from beginning of history has been about 200 years. During those 200 years, these nations progressed through the following sequence, bondage to spiritual faith, spiritual faith to great courage, courage to liberty, liberty to abundance, abundance to complacency, complacency to apathy, apathy to dependence, and dependence back into bondage. It's by a man named Alexander Fraser Teitler. You can see where we are on there, I think, probably. It's certainly not at the top. Uh, this was said by a man named Thomas Macaulay back in 1857, a British parliamentarian. When your, repu- your republic will be as fearfully plundered and laid waste by barbarians in the 20th century as the Roman Empire was in the 5th century. With this difference, the Huns and Vandals who ravaged the Roman Empire came from without. Your Huns and Vandals will have been engendered within your own country. An interesting statement, isn't it? Prophetic statement. 
One of the things I think about, I want to mention this. I don't want to go into it in extreme depth here this morning. You can maybe look at this more on your own. Romans chapter 1 is an interesting chapter about nations. Romans chapter 1 is uh, the first 17 verses are the, the introduction to the book. And in the beginning of verse 18, we have the beginning of God's condemnation of the human race before he talks about justification later. And you notice in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It goes on down to talk about God's judgment. And then verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28, you have the same statement made three times. And God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. And let me, beginning verse 24, it says, And God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They exchanged the truth of God. Literally in the Greek, it's there for the lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function. And in the same way, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are, are not proper. So when you read this passage here, here's the thing that you want to notice. It's not saying that if these bad things happen in your country, that God will give you over to sin. It's saying if these things are happening, it's the sign God has already given you over. That's a sobering thing to think about. And when you read these verses here, what you really read in verse 24 and 25 is about a a sexual revolution. They gave their bodies over to impurity. And then verse 26 and 27, I think the only way to describe that is a homosexual revolution. And then down in verse 28, you read, they didn't see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And in fact, it goes on to say uh, down uh, a little bit further on down here that uh, they not only do these things, but they celebrate those who do them. And what it's saying here is, is when these things are happening, it's, it's because God is beginning to give people over to their own sin. And that word to give over, by the way, in the Greek, more than, means more than God just takes his hands off. It's actually when you go in a direction and want to go there, God actually gives them a push in it. It's like, if that's where you want to go, then go ahead. It's kind of like a, a boat, a little toy boat in a river or a creek. You know, it's, the, the current's taking it, and you give it a push in the direction that it wants to go. So when we see these things happening in a culture, it's the sign that God is giving people over uh, to their sinfulness. And I'm, uh, I'll be 55 here this summer, or in the next week. I was born uh, in 1959. And in my lifetime, in the 60s and 70s, saw the, the sexual revolution take place. The 1980s through today, the homosexual revolution to take place. And then you, you see these things in our culture celebrated. In fact, if you go on a television program and you talk about uh, God and the Bible and those things, people will mock you and make fun of you. And if you talk about wicked and evil and sinfulness, they'll applaud you. you know, it's, uh, they, it's like the book of Isaiah. They call good evil. They call evil good. It, it's upside down. You say, well, man, you, you see all this. Well, what do we do? You know, does this mean we just give up on our country and throw in the towel? Well, you know, nobody knows when these things are going to happen. You know, I'm 55, and I know I'm not going to live forever. And you could say, well, if you know you're going to die in the next 20 or 30 years, why do you eat right and exercise, right? Well, you want to do the best you can as long as you can. 
And I would say it's the same thing for our country, right? So what do we do? Well, we do what we can while we can. Plus, no one knows when these things are going to happen. So what we need to do is live godly lives. You know, it's one thing to decry the sin in our culture, but do we decry our own sin? I love that. In Isaiah 1 through 5, over and over again, he's saying, Woe, woe, woe upon the, the wicked nation of Judah. And then he gets to chapter 6, and he sees God high and lifted up, and he says, Woe is me from a man of unclean lips. So if we're engaged in the, the filth and the corruption of this society, we're not doing it any good either. Live godly lives. We want to support Israel. Uh, the promise God made in, back in Genesis chapter 12 is still true. Uh, those who bless you, I will bless. And literally in the Hebrew, it is in the one who curses you, I must curse. And I think one of the reasons God still has his hand of blessing on this country, in spite of all of our other problems, has been our support of Israel. But that seems to be eroding a bit as well in these times in which we live. We need to pray for our nation and pray for, for our leaders. Now, you say, well, what is going to happen to America in the future? Well, my view is, is that I think that America's fall, if you will, is going to happen at the rapture. You think about uh, Barna and all their research. They say about 8% of the people in America, 8 to 10%, are true believers in Jesus Christ. If that's anywhere close to true, that's over 30 million people that disappear in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the rapture. You say, well, people are going to disappear all over the world. That's true. But most other parts of the world, like in Europe, it's less than 1% of the people are, are true Christians, true believers in Christ. Um, other parts of the world, it's, it's very low as well. In the Arab part of the world, that's one of the reasons we need to send, or the Muslim part of the world, that's why we need to send missionaries there to these places. But the rapture could be the end of America as we know it. Talk, think about the drop on the Dow Jones the next day. You talk about a mortgage crisis. I mean, you think about all these things, the salt and the light immediately taken out uh, of this country. So it could be that we will remain strong to be this friend and defender of Israel until uh, the rapture comes. I like this sign I ran across years ago. It's uh, the rapture, separation of church and state. That'll be it, won't it? I do like to point out, though, this is from a church in Texas, and the word separation is spelled wrong there, so anyway, I like to point that out. We're not always fond of the Texans there in Oklahoma, but that's from a church in Denton, Texas. But, you know, it could be that America will be brought to her knees at the rapture, and that we could be absorbed and into the Antichrist Empire. Again, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us, but we do know the rapture is coming. And uh, we know that's going to decimate America. One other, one other question always comes up is, because the Antichrist come from America? Sometimes they ask if it's a particular American, you know, if it, uh, who, who you have to not like. You know, if it Ronald Wilson Reagan, you know, he had six, six, six letters in his name. Or, you know, it's Bill Clinton, you know, and Hillary's the false prophet. Or it's President Obama or whoever you don't like, you know. Um, I don't think the, the Antichrist will be from America. The only verse that tells us about his uh, place of origin is in Daniel 9.26, and it says, the people of that prince who is to come will destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And we know who destroyed the temple were the Romans, and so I think he's going to come out of the Roman Empire. I don't think it necessarily means he'll be Italian, but I think it means he will come out of uh, the old uh, the, the Roman Empire. So I don't think the Antichrist will be, uh, be from America. But, you know, the, the role of America, we are receding in this world, our influences. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think everyone would agree that that's happening. And as we're receding, this power vacuum is being filled by others. And you think again, think about it, if some of these events I've talked about happened in fatal combination. 
Maybe there was, if you think about all the massive debt we have, maybe there's some you know, terrorist act here, a nuclear terrorist act, and then you add the rapture on top of something like that. So these things could happen in some fatal uh, combination. But I think at the same time we see uh, Israel having been regathered to their land, we see all that chaos in the Middle East that's going to ultimately require some kind of a peace treaty, you see at the same time the reduction of the United States. I don't think that's an accident. But again, we need to do what we can while we can. Uh, Another signpost for us is what I call just rumors of war in the Middle East. Um, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a passage that tells us about a coming Middle East war where uh, a group of nations are going to come down into the land of Israel in the end time. And uh, Rosh is mentioned there, which I do believe is modern-day Russia. Uh, Meshach, Tubal, uh, uh, Beth Togarma, uh, Gomer, those are all mentioned. Those are all in modern-day Turkey, I believe. Again, I don't have time to, to prove that here this morning, but Turkey has taken a hard turn back to the right under their uh, leader now, a man named Erdogan. Uh, they want to be uh, have a, a revival of the Ottoman Empire. So if you've done any reading about Turkey lately, they've been rebuffed by the EU, and they've made a hard turn back toward the east. Um, you have uh, Put mentioned there in that passage, Libya. Uh, you have uh, one of the nations mentioned there is Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And, of course, if there's a nation today that is in the thorn in the side of Israel, it's Iran. And I think one of the tragedies is, is what's happening there now is all this stuff with Gaza and all this and these rockets. In fact, this may, may even be part of it. They're working in conjunction with Iran is to get all the focus off of Iran. Because Iran, Iran's strategy when it comes to nuclear weapons is talk and build. They just keep talking and keep building, and they keep talking and they keep building. And the longer they can draw out the talking, the more they can build. And so I wonder if what's happening with Gaza and these other places isn't kind of a subterfuge to kind of get people's focus on this and get their eye off the real problem over there. The real problem for Israel is Iran. Iran is led by a mullah regime that has an apocalyptic view of the end times, and they think they can speed up the coming of their Messiah, their Mahdi, by bringing chaos into the world. Now, that's not people you want to have their trigger finger on a nuclear weapon. And um, that's what's happening over there uh, in the nation of Iran today. And they're one of the nations mentioned in Ezekiel 38. So, I mean, you go down the line, Ezekiel 38, it's Russia, um, it's Iran, it's Libya, it's Turkey. I mean, it's uh, the nations uh, of Central Asia. Uh, These are the places uh, today that would have a vendetta against Israel to come in and to uh, destroy them. I mean, Russia, they've taken Crimea. They're destabilizing the Ukraine. So all the pressure is building over there in that part of the world. It's a gathering storm, and the lid could blow off at any time. One of the things I think is fascinating is when you read Ezekiel 38, and it lists all those ancient places, Now, obviously, Meshach and Tubal and all those places don't exist, so we find the modern counterpart that exists there today. And we do that, we see that it's nations that are in the headlines today. And to me, this is another proof of the inspiration of the Bible. 2,600 years ago, Ezekiel, inspired by the Spirit, wrote those words. And here we look here today, and it reads like today's headlines. And the chapter right before Ezekiel 38 and 39 is Ezekiel 37, which is the regathering of the Jewish people to their land. And they get gathered there in the end times. It says, while they're living at peace, then these nations are going to invade them. And I think that peace will be that first three and a half years of the tribulation. They're going to be under that treaty with, their, with the Antichrist. And that's when these nations are going to come in. And 
God is going to destroy them at that time and wipe them out. Here's a, a map that kind of shows you where they are. Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, Togarma, Put, Kush, which that's modern-day Sudan, a radical Islamic nation, Persia, which is Iran, then Rosh and Magog, all these nations around Israel. Now, here's one thing. We'll, we may, I may talk about this tonight during the Q&A, so I may ask and answer a question myself tonight. And that is, when you look at this map, though, this is all the far enemies of Israel. Did you notice that? Look at all the enemies right around Israel. Egypt, you have Syria, you have Jordan, you have Saudi Arabia, you have Lebanon. I mean, even Iraq over here, which is right where the L is there on Israel, just to the right of that is, is Iraq. None of those nations are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So people say, well, these are the far enemies. What happens to the near enemies? They're right around Israel. And some people uh, posit a a Psalm 83 war. Some of you may have heard about that. Some people think that Syria will be destroyed because of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 17. But I might talk about both of those things tonight, just kind of at the beginning of the Q&A to kind of address that, because a lot of people have heard about those things. I don't know that the Bible tells us for sure what happens to all the near enemies. I think Egypt is going to be a part of this invasion too. They're called the king of the south. But it may be that these other enemies have been wiped out somehow, or it may be that they're part of this peace agreement, and they don't join in with this this invasion. I don't know that the Bible tells us for sure, but one of the things that we see today, again, is just the whole world is focused on the Middle East. You know, when I, was, when I was younger, I mean, no one cared as much what was happening over there. But, you know, Israel's become a nation. All the oil was, that was over there, all the terrorism that's emanating from there, that is the focus of the world today. And again, it's just the stage setting. The stage is being set with all of these things. One other one, we'll, we'll mention two last signs here, and then we'll close for this morning. Uh, I call this, this next one the revolt of apostasy. The revolt of apostasy. The word apostasy means to to depart or fall away from the truth or to stand against the truth. Apostates are people who depart from or stand against the truth. And in the Bible, surging apostasy is a sign of the times. In fact, I I think where you all left off in your study of 1 Timothy last time, I was talking with your pastor. I mean, that's one of the verses I was going to read here. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, In the latter times, uh, many will fall away from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits, to doctrines uh, of demons. Over in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, In the latter uh, times, in the last days, difficult times will come or perilous times will come. One of the things we need to remember is this whole age we live in is the last days. People often say, do you think we're living in the last days? The answer is yes. The whole time between the first and second coming of Jesus is the last days. But in in, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, in the last days, in other words, during this whole period, difficult times will come. There'll be times when it's going to be especially perilous. We're in one of those times now. And I think that it's very likely that we are living in the last days of the last days. And one of the signs of this is apostasy. It's interesting to me, I, the, the, the books of the Bible are inspired, but I think the order of the books is inspired as well. And what is the, the last book right before you get to the book of Revelation? It's the book of Jude. And what's Jude about? It's about uh, standing firm for the faith. 
It's about uh, holding to that, that faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints because of the apostasy and the false teaching that's come in. And I like to call the book of Jude the foyer to the book of Revelation. It's kind of the, the introduction, if you will, to the book of Revelation of the kinds of conditions that will exist in the world. What we see happening today is doctrinal apostasy and moral apostasy. Your doctrine and your doing always go together. Uh, Your believing and your behaving are always linked together. You can't separate uh, the two from one another. Doctrine leads to, to doing. Believing leads to behaving. And the problem today is we have people who are denying the, the, the essential doctrines of Christianity. They're saying that you don't have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Uh, Jesus didn't really uh, rise again from the dead. Um, hell's not a real place, or if it is, no one's going there. Uh, on and on you can go. Uh, I was reading a, a book recently, and a man said this. He says, the greatest fear today is not error, it's intolerance. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. <laughs> kind of interesting, isn't it? Our society, when you think about it, will tolerate anything but intolerance. At our colleges and universities, students are taught not to fear error, but to fear intolerance. The the issue is not, you you ought to fear being wrong or incorrect, but what we're taught to fear is intolerance. In a strange irony today, and this is in the church, it's fashionable to search for the truth, but it's unfashionable to find it and tell other people about it. Now, you think about that. Everybody, oh, we want to know the truth. You know, it's, it's fashionable to be searching for it. But if you ever say, I found it, and you tell somebody about it, then you're a bigot because you claim uh, that you've uh, found the truth. And it's the same thing in Christianity today. It's kind of like out there in, you know, this broad moving emerging church, whatever people call it. It's, trying to, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. Uh, they, 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 what they believe, they're discarding the, the tenets of uh, historical Christianity. And it's apostasy. The Bible calls it that. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is, the day of the Lord or the tribulation, unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is uh, revealed. So after the rapture, when the Antichrist is revealed, there's something the Bible says is coming called the apostasy. It's the ultimate falling away. But I think today we are on the leading edge of that. We're not in it yet. It's going to be after the rapture. But it seems like we're on the leading edge of it. I read a story about Mark Twain. In his early life, he moved to a mining town in Colorado. It was a wide-open town with all kinds of brothels and bars on every corner. And Mark Twain said, I immediately recognized this was no place for a Presbyterian, so I decided not to be one. <laughs> and uh, at least he was honest, right? But he, he compromised. And, and people today everywhere are following uh, his example. They're, they're compromising. When they find it hard to be a Christian, they either quit trying or uh, they compromise their convictions. Here's what John Phillips says in one of his books. He says, Some people think we can look for a worldwide spiritual awakening before the rapture. But the passage in Second Thessalonians indicates the opposite. A worldwide departure from the faith can be expected. Then he says this, and this is good, he balances it. God might indeed send a revival before the rapture, but the Scriptures do not prophesy one. This age will close with a great uh, falling away. Look, we're not experiencing the full-blown apostasy yet that's coming, but again, we might be on the leading edge of that. 
We're witnessing today the tragic erosion of biblical truth and biblical morality. And the two go together. They're they're inexorably linked together. There's a departure from the truth. Sound doctrine is under siege today. And Satan is out there sowing the tares among the wheat. Most denominations have already plunged headlong into apostasy. And there's a, I mean, there's, you could call it, uh, the only way I know to describe it, there's a liberal landslide in seminaries out there today. And by the way, the seminaries that that hasn't happened to need support to send young people there and to send money there and to help them and support them. Again, the tragic effects of this are seen all around us. William Booth, who founded the Salvation Army years ago, predicted by the end of the 20th century there would be Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, and heaven without hell. And that's pretty much what we, uh, what we see today. It's apostasy. There's a couple of quotes. Uh, Gene Robinson, who was the bishop who's a homosexual, who he was at the fifth annual Planned Parenthood Interfaith Prayer Breakfast, which that's a, uh, that's a mouthful. It's an oxymoron, but... He says, we've allowed the Bible to be taken hostage. It's being wielded by folks who would use it to hit us over the head. We have to take back those scriptures. What an unimaginative God it would be if God only put one meaning in any verse of scripture. So, you know, we just take the Bible back and we kind of make it mean what we want it to mean. And and I understand your pastors referred to Rob Bell, his book, Love Wins. Here's one quote. He says, there's inclusivity, the kind that's open to all religions, the kind that trusts that good people will get in that there's only one mountain, but it has many paths. This inclusivity assumes as long as your heart is fine, your actions measure up, you'll be okay. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, narrow is the path, narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. Few there be that find it. Broad is the gate, broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there be that find it. You know, Peter said, there's salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men whereby uh, we must be saved. And sin and lawlessness in our culture, again, is not only being tolerated, it's being celebrated. One, one thing here finally on this, i probably taken too long, but I want to just point out one verse here. Look in Revelation chapter 2. I'll just point you to this. You might want to talk about this later uh, sometime, or maybe even your pastor, you all may want to discuss this. In the letters to the seven churches, the church of Thyatira, I call this church the tolerant church. Now, by the way, let me just say this. We all want to be tolerant people in certain ways in life. We all want to be compromising. If you have a good marriage, a good family, we all have to learn how to be tolerant, right? If you're not tolerant, things aren't going to go very good. We want to be tolerant with our neighbors, and and we want to be tolerant uh, politically and lot of ways. It's good to to do those things, but we don't want to be tolerant or compromise in spiritual matters and what we believe. So compromise and tolerance aren't aren't bad things in a lot of areas of life, but when it comes to the truth, the, the fundamental truth of the Word of God and the moral standards in the Word of God, we cannot compromise there and be tolerant. But notice that the church to Thyatira, these are the words of Jesus, but I have this against you, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. In other words, Jesus saying tolerance is bad here. She calls herself a prophetess. She teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. What was happening in the city of Thyatira is there was a lot of trade guilds there. And uh, the Christians that went there, they, they'd go to these trade guild meetings. They'd eat food sacrificed to idols. A lot of immorality went on in these meetings. And so they were kind of having to make a choice. Am I going to be a member of one of these trade guilds and be prosperous financially? Or am I going to quit that? And it's going to really hurt you financially. 
and uh, uh, evidently some woman in the church came along who was a, said she was a prophetess. She said, I've got a great solution. You can have Christ and you can have the trade guilds too. And you can, you can commit immorality and you can, still be, you, you can still come and be part of the church. You can eat this meat sacrificed to idols. In other words, it was a tolerance. And that's what that same thing we're seeing today, isn't it, all around this country? is, yeah, you can come and, and, and name the name of Jesus Christ, but you can live how you want to live or believe what you want to believe. And so I call this today the spirit of Jezebel. And I won't name names here today, but there are several women out there that are very, very well-known, very popular on blogs and websites that are out there saying the very same thing about all kinds of, 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 of sexual sin. Saying you can be involved in this sexual sin and still be a person who's pleasing to God. It's, it's the spirit of Jezebel that's upon us. And by the way, you go on, he says, I'll give her time to repent. And if she does not repent of her immorality, I'll cast her on a bed of sickness. Those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, lest they repent of their deeds, I'll kill her children with pestilence. Well, all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches minds and hearts. And I'll give each one of you according to your deeds. That's what Jesus says. So he's serious about uh, these things. But look, look we're, we're in a culture where everything is cascading in a certain direction, and we're having to swim upstream within the culture. But what God calls on us to do is to be loving, to be kind, to be gracious people. But we have to stand for the truth of the Word of God. Uh, we have to stand for the, the, the doctrinal truth and the moral truth. Well, one final point here, the rise of globalism. Um, you know, we, we see our world today is tied together. I mean, it's, you know, unlike any time in history. All the Internet stuff, all the long-range missiles, global positioning technology. I mean, we're, we're one. And you think about this. After the flood, a man named Nimrod gathered everybody together at Babel. You remember that? The Tower of Babel. And um, by the way, the Euphrates River is the cradle and the grave of civilization. Uh, Babylon's there, and Babylon is going to be rebuilt in the end time. We could talk about that too, but they're all gathered there together, and God comes and scatters man over the face of the earth. And ever since that time, Satan has been working trying to get people back together again so he can rule the whole world under one person. So we went from tribalism to nationalism, now to globalism. And Satan is doing all he can to get the whole world together so that he can bring, to, bring on the scene another Nimrod, the Antichrist of the end times, and he can rule the world. And we see in, in Revelation chapter 13, the mark of the beast that's going to be instituted, I think a cashless society. We see all of these things, I think, lining up in a way. Uh, that tells us that the end could be soon. But you have to have a global world economy, the, the setup for global government, for the Antichrist to rule the world the way the Bible predicts in Revelation 13. And again, the globalism we see today is setting the stage for that. Well, look, events are lining up the way we should expect them to. I mean, look at this. The gathering, gathering of Israel, 1,900 years they've been gone. The reuniting of, of uh, the Roman Empire, I think the beginnings of that, at least during the EU, after 1,600 years of being split up. Ratifying of a peace treaty, reduction of the U.S., rumors of war in the Middle East, the revolt of apostasy, the rise of globalism, and literally on and on we could go. Now, people say, well, what's the difference between today and times past? Well, I think two differences. One today is the acceleration of these things. The impact today when events happen, it's accelerated exponentially because of all the, all the uh, Internet and all the, the 24-7 news we have. 
So everything's like it's on fast forward. And so everything is accelerating, and then you have convergence of all these things within uh, about a 60-year period. So to me, the signs in our world today are like runway lights that are beginning to to light up to tell us that Jesus is coming. And it could be uh, coming very soon. Now, how do we respond to this? I like the old story of uh, Snoopy one time. He's sitting on top of his his, uh, doghouse writing a book, and he begins it. uh, It was a dark and a stormy night. And Lucy walks by and she says, You dumb dog, don't you know that every good story begins with the words... Uh, once upon a time, she kind of berates him and walks off. And when she leaves, Snoopy begins writing again. He says, once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of describes our world today, doesn't it, in a lot of ways. You look out there morally, economically, and just spiritually, it's a dark and stormy night. But I like the words of Corey Tinboom. She says, you look at this world, you'll get uh, distressed. You look within, you'll get depressed. But you look at Jesus, you'll find rest. And I like that. You look at this world long enough, you'll get distressed. You look within very long, you'll get depressed. But if you look at Christ, you'll find rest. And the Bible tells us we need to live looking, looking to Jesus Christ and His coming. He's to be the center of, of everything in our lives. Jesus is the center of everything in heaven. You read Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb, that slain standing lambs in the center of everything. And if He's at the center of everything in heaven, how much more should He be in the center of everything uh, here on earth. So the question is, are we ready? Are we ready for uh, His coming? I'll close with a couple of stories here, and then we'll end. One of them is uh, a couple of years ago in January of 2012, uh, my family, we got to go to the uh, Fiesta Bowl. I just met somebody who's from Stanford who liked them, so I'm sorry for this story because OSU beat Stanford in the BCS Bowl there. But we got to the game, and we were all excited, and we down there in Arizona, and we got to the game, and OSU uh, gets down 7 to nothing pretty early, and then they get down 14 to nothing. And I'm always kind of, you know, negative about my teams, me and one of my sons, how they're going to get killed, you know, and get beat, and we wasted all this money. And, but my wife and son here, they're always real positive, you know, about it. Well, OSU kind of does come back and gets near the end of the game, and... and uh, Stanford's driving down. They just have a chip shot field goal. They get down at the end, and the guy misses it. So it goes into overtime. In overtime, they miss another field goal. OSU scores in overtime and wins the game. I mean, it's great. We go back to our place that night, and, and they're just celebrating and all excited. And we get back there, and lo and behold, the game's coming on. They're replaying it that quickly. And so we begin to watch the game, and I start watching it. And this time, Stanford goes up 7 to nothing. and I'm not even worried this time. I mean, I'm just sitting there relaxed. And... <laughs> Uh, Stanford scores again. I'm just sitting there eating my sandwich, laughing, having a good old time. And in fact, my wife and I went to bed. We we're still watching the, some more of the game. And I said, I think we can turn the game off here because I think we know who wins. And to me, that's a, a picture of our lives as believers. Uh, you know, when, when you know what's coming, it changes how you live, doesn't it? And we don't know everything. We don't know everything that's coming, but we do know a lot of things uh, that God's told us. And so my prayer is knowing Him, knowing what's coming can help us to be more effective uh, as we live for Him in, in, in these days before He comes. So if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you say, well, how can I come to know Him? Well, you can come to know Him by, by simply think, thinking this way. Come to Him and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Well, we're all sinners. We've all broken God's law. Lord, I know that I need a Savior. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Savior who died on the cross for me and rose again. And I trust in Him and take Him to be my Savior. The Bible's so simple. It says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord uh, will be saved. So if you've never done that, why not come 
and take him to be your Savior. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you that we can be ready through our our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. You tell us in your word that he died for us. He died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. We thank you, Father, that he is in the center of everything in heaven. We know that you want him to be the center of our lives now. Lord, we do live in a time where it's a dark and a stormy night, and you know that. We thank you, Lord, for how you sustain us and give us the good of this life. And we do thank you for this country you've given to us and for the freedoms we still have. Lord, in spite of all the problems here, it's still the best place in the world to live, and we thank you for that. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those in authority. Give them wisdom, Lord. Help them to turn to you and look to you for strength. And Father, help us to be the salt and the light you want us to be as we await the coming of our Savior. We ask these things in his dear name. Amen. That was awesome. That was awesome. Mark, people are going to accuse you and I of getting together and sharing sermons. All right. Did we talk? All you knew was that we were in 1 Timothy, right? And you only knew that here. Right. Well, we had the same quotes. We had the just amazing way that the Holy Spirit works. Amen. Amen. How's that for timing? How does God, how does God do that? Amazing. I wanted to say, see, it's not just me. It's not just me. Well, listen, life turns out to be a lot more important than a lot of us think. To see these promises 2,600 years ago written? I mean, what if, what if those countries loved Israel right now? What if there was no Israel? What, it, you know, we'd be looking at the Bible going, this doesn't make sense, but that, that, that it lines up? You know how long 2,600 years is? It's a long time to see these things come into play like that. I just sit and I just go, God, I, this is my response. What an honor and what a privilege, God, that you, you woke me up, that I, I could have walked straight through this life and not have seen any of it and gone straight and ended up at the great white throne judgment. But God, the grace of God, though I was dead in my sins and walking in the ways of the world, he made me alive and seated me in heavenly places like he has done for most of you here. I just came away thinking, what a privilege to be knowing the truth, to be walking in the right way, to know God and rather to be known by God. It just, it's so exciting. Let me just say one more thing. <laughs> Sorry. You know the pastor gets up. You didn't get to preach. Give him a little slack, all right? Listen, you were made for this moment. You were born for this. Don't be thinking, you know, I'm never going to make it. You know, God knew when and where he was going to put people. That's a line from one of Peter's sermons. And he put you at this time and in this place because he believed in you. He's for you. You were created for this hour. You're not going to fail as long as you keep your eye on him and your your nose in the book and your knees on the ground and your hands doing your father's business. Amen. Amen. You are made for this.
Uh, Let's stand. Closing song, and then we'll dismiss in prayer. Oh, Pastor Mark, you really encouraged me. You know what? It takes a lot of courage and boldness, and thank you for reminding me. I took a lot of heat, even publicly, last week, just for sharing the same very unpopular message, not from non-Christians, but from Christians. Yeah, I, I just stand with you. Thank you for encouraging me with the boldness to come as a guest speaker and say things that all of us were, you know, oh, this is the subject. Oh, no, right? We can't talk about this. Yeah, we can. It's in the Bible, and we're supposed to stand there. And let me just say this. Jesus loves everybody the way they were born. And he says, come to me and be born again. Right? And the spirit comes in. We love everybody in the world, including our enemies. Right? But God loves us enough not to leave us in that condition, to change us. And so I just appreciate another man who's going to be mocked all over the Internet and uh, branded as a heretic and a narrow-minded, ignorant, old-school... Well, you know the adjectives, right? (laughs) So praise the Lord. You know what? We're going to go forward in the power of God's Spirit according to His Word. Let's dismiss with His blessing. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the awesome privilege to stand with You, the man of sorrows who is rejected and despised and we get a little bit to enter into some of the fellowship of your suffering to to take on being reviled well it's reviled because of the things you said and our relationship with you because we didn't invent any of this we're just getting heat because we're connected to you and we thank you for that heat what a privilege to stand with the crucified and risen Lord of all, and take a little bit of what you had, Lord. So we thank you, God. Make us courageous. Let us just take one day at a time and serve the Lord and whatever you call us to do, to do it in the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, and for his glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said a hearty. Amen. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So, hey, don't forget, tonight, 6 o'clock, and Q&A time with this guy. Oh, powerful. All right. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvertherock.org.